Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Maura Smiley. Maura is an in-demand composer writing for ensembles such as the Los Angeles Master Chorale, Voces Nove, and Myrna Lorna Theater, and on Oscar Festival. She is an active performer as lead singer of Maura Smiley and Voco. Her voice and compositions have been featured in TED conferences on BBC Radio and TV, NPR, ABC Australia, among others. She premiered her solo album, Unzip the Horizon at the Savannah Music Festival in 2018 and Companion Songbook in 2019. Maura Smiley, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure. Now, I really enjoyed the opportunity to get into your music while researching for this podcast. And I have to say, the videos I watched of of you and especially of you performing your music, you look like just such a fun person to perform with. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope one day our paths can cross in a way that we can perform together. Me too. You have such an authentic, sincere air about you while you're performing. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's thank you for noticing that. I mean, I, of course, I don't even realize it, but yeah, I, I have sometimes chuckled at videos afterwards going like, wow, you just, <laughs> you're really into it, aren't you? You know? And, uh, I mean, at the time, yeah, I think that's what I'm finding the most difficult um, about the pandemic and staying home is that music is so physical for me. And um, so it's it is a joy to perform. And I, I hope we do cross paths and, and get to do it together. Now, there was a sentence on your online bio that intrigued me. It says, her recordings feature spare, vocally driven collections of warped traditional songs and original polyphony. So mm. help me unpack this a little bit. Mm-hmm. So... Your vocal style seems to be rooted in a style other than the traditional bel canto style. Mm, um, mm-hmm. I saw it written that you are described as a vocal shapeshifter. Mm, mm-hmm. How would you define that description? So I have taken on a mission in my own teaching and performing life to push the envelope of what the voice can do, you know, and so... In the art music circles, you know, you think of Joan LaBarbera or other singers like her who are really using what they call extended vocal techniques, right? Um, and and I love that. But I also have this background and continuing uh, work in folk music. And folk music often uses the voice in a different way than is typical in pop in sort of western pop or western classical tradition and and the reason that those sounds are often different is that the context is different you know we're singing for different reasons maybe it's for uh, an outdoor occasion maybe it's for a birth or a funeral Um, it's often not on stage and it's often not in front of a microphone um, and and often the singing is for a very emotional moment, you know. And so I like to teach other singers that the voice and, the, and therefore the body um, can be musical and all in this very expansive way um, and not to feel limited at, at, at the get-go. Um, and so that is a bit of a mission of mine, I think, because it feels so good for me to explore this instrument, this column of air inside my my own body. So I want to help others feel that joy um, and feeling of connection and belonging that can happen from singing authentically, you know, and with your with your whole self. Now, where do you think the interest in folk music came from? It came early. I mean, I was I grew up in a community that that valued folk music um and and valued it for its way of bringing communities together so i grew up you know in what might be called an alternative or sort of 
some would call it a hippie culture, but it's also this sort of intellectual kind of hippie culture where you're looking, it's it's in the, in the path of the Seegers and the Lomaxes where you're valuing um, culture equally. It's this cultural equity idea that art music is important and folk music is important and, you know, that they're all these bodies of culture or, or sound that are equal in value. And, um, and so that's where that came from was an early exposure to folk music and its interaction with other, you know, with other forms like dance and, um, you know, community gatherings, uh, sacred spiritual times. Um, and so I found folk music to be useful and engaging and for a shy kid, it was where I could be that I felt really easy with other people. Yeah. And you grew up in Vermont, right? Yes. So how did you get from Vermont to L.A.? What was, so, what was your path there? Yeah, good question. So slow movement west. I went to Indiana University and loved it there. Got a degree. Stayed there uh, for a little bit afterwards as well. Started a, a acapella group there. Um, and I had entered that as a pianist right uh, that was what was paying for school um, okay. and then uh, left as a vocalist then I got a job so I'd been I'd been singing and leading this this acapella quartet we'd been signed with a big agency called IMG and we were doing um, performances around the country and we met a group called Kitka and Kitka does uh, is out in the Bay Area and does Eastern European music, which in this, this was still in the early 2000s, was performing. I mean, I was making a full living performing Eastern European polyphony with them around the world. So that's what brought me to California. And it was because we met in that circuit of performing arts organizations. They are like ACDA conferences there are these APAP conferences or arts conferences where you'll meet each other if you're sort of doing cultural music. Um, and so that moved me to the Bay Area. And then, oh, I think it was a boyfriend that I followed down to LA. Um, it was a bit disastrous, but I ended up staying and, and starting a band there. And that's where I stayed for a while. Yeah, I was curious. I saw in your collection you have several folk arrangements of Eastern European folk songs. I was yeah. wondering what that connection was. Yeah, it was that. It was it was an early exposure uh, by a teacher here, Mary Kay Brass um, in Vermont, and also the Village Harmony um, sort of youth folk. Cult. They they do amazing, authentic work. I mean, really deep work with folk polyphony and. So I had exposure to that early. And then Kitka is doing that on a professional level in the Bay Area. And and it's where, you know, you have a, a bunch of American singers that are really sitting at the knees or at the feet of professional singers or, or grandmothers that are the finest singers of these folk styles. So we went to Ukraine and Bulgaria and Croatia and, you know, Russia to study those those song styles. That is amazing. Is that when you started arranging as well, when you were working with these groups, or did that start earlier? That started earlier. For some reason, I was always a keen little arranger, you know, starting simple, you know, like the the whole idea of it, as probably was your case, I didn't have a sophisticated sense of it. It was, arranging was more like a sense of you know, a menomoso, like a, the growth, the growth of a song and then how to to close it out, you know. And so um, my arranging started out quite simply like that. And I, I think this the most um, ubiquitous arrangement of mine, Bring Me Little Water Sylvie, is kind of like that. It's just start small, open up, get bigger and come back down uh, to small again at the end. Yeah. Yeah, we'll come back to Bring Me Little Water Sylvie in just a moment. Uh, <clears throat> so one of the things I enjoy about your compositions is your liberal use of body percussion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as someone who feels completely uncoordinated when it comes to dancing <laughs> and body movement, I'm curious as how you decided to make this part of your sound. Were you a dancer mm. or a percussionist mm. or 
or what? Good, good questions. No and no. <laughs> um, and and my friend Evie Layden, who is the person who made the body percussion for Sylvie, um, you know, came up to me. I do love to dance. It gives me su- um, an amazing amount of joy, but I am not good at it. I'm 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 good when I'm you know don't have people watching me. Um, or I can make it up myself, um, then great. If I have to follow somebody else's body language and try to copy it, um, like in a dance class, I am the slowest kid in the room. <laughs> so I just want everybody to know that. But yes, I love making these rhythm um, parts. And um, for me, it's again coming back to how can I make my body and my sound the most musical um, possible. Like, how can I make my body music? And that's really the impetus over and over again for for body percussion. And we, you know, writing for this choral tradition, you have many bodies in the same space, and it's so powerful to see to see humans moving together. You know, so that's. Um, something that I mean dare I say I exploit that idea of many people making rhythm together and movement together is a very pleasing thing yeah you know when I was working on my dissertation uh, I focused on a folk song collection so I reached out to you to talk about yes. your process of working uh, with folk songs as part of one of your answers you said my own physicality gets mixed into my arranging process so is yeah is the body percussion is that something that sort of comes when you're writing like you said you're uh you physically get into the music yeah that's exactly it and it does i the best the best arrangements do come when i'm up from my seat and and this this applies specifically to arranging that i'm saying this um not necessarily to composing because that's a bit of a different process but um yes arranging if i'm physical with it I feel like there is a the truthfulness, I guess, is what comes through for me. Um, If it feels exciting and a bit on the edge of my abilities um, to be communicative through the movement and the singing, then I feel like that will be what it feels like to the singers Mm -hmm. and to the audience. Yeah, it. it, I really feel that connection to the music with the movement in there as well. You know, you have several pieces that are amazingly rich harmonically, yet accessible for younger voices. I'm thinking specifically about songs like Bring Me a Little Water, Sylvie. Uh, you know, looking you up on YouTube comes up with several recordings of this piece. Uh, yeah. And I know that you've worked either in person or over video with several of these ensembles, helping them learn the body percussion. As I mentioned earlier, my coordination, not great, <laughs> especially with my feet. It's been a weak point. Yes. So, But you know uh, what that is, Steve? That's actually just somebody didn't talk to you about. Um, I get very mental, too, about about these things. And I like to figure it out on a sort of mental basis. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but, oh, no, but no, no it is about weight shifting. It's about understanding how our weight shifting works. and And some of us need somebody to check in with that and that's actually how I teach body percussion often if I see somebody you know in a zoom situation these days that's not getting a body percussion thing I can sense like they don't know that they have to take the weight off of one of the of one side you know of of one foot in order to have it free to do the next thing which is stomp or or sway or whatever and we just not all of us have this automatic um you know, hand to eye coordination. I don't. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's solvable. Yeah. So that sort of touches on my question. What do you tell these singers, especially young singers to help them overcome the fear of making mistakes, especially during performance? Mm, Ah, yeah. You know, that's, I've never been asked that question. And, um, I am, I am a very, uh, perfectionist person. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I have trouble with that, that idea of being worried with stumbling in front of other people. Um, yeah, that's, that's hard. I think in a way 
I, and I also, this, I don't know why this is sending me down this path, but it is. I'm thinking about watching myself perform with a string quartet, actually Makadonska, and seeing how my movement is a little outside, like a little uncomfortably outside that classical realm. You know, mm-hmm. there's these beautifully poised um, players, either in the Lyris String Quartet or um, the California String Quartet, which I've done uh, performances with. And I guess, I guess part of the magic of my of of me, me being me is that I don't notice um, in the moment. I'm certainly self-conscious, but. I just have to let the music come through me as it does. And if I look back on it, I might be critical and slightly judgmental. Like, oh, you didn't fit in. You didn't um, dial in those movements so that they are as socially acceptable. And I guess this is the, this is, I feel like the dial that we toggle as composers, as creators, as performers, we have to be aware of our surroundings and the zeitgeist, but we also have to just let the music come through as it does. And um, so that's what I would counsel a young person. That's great. You know, in that video of you performing with the string quartet, uh, Makadonska, is that how you said mm-hmm, the name, mm-hmm. name of the piece? Uh, one of the things I loved about it was the fact that you were so, so yourself and mm-hmm. not trying to prescribe yourself to what the string quartet was doing. Yeah. And I think pushing the the envelope of what is socially acceptable in classical music is really important in our yeah. in our world right now. Yeah. Sort of going beyond to the next level. What what is possible? Yeah. What is it? And and I what I'm doing may not hit it every time. May not hit that like sweet spot of What's next for, yes, classical music, art music? Like, what does make it feel like a true communication? Um, and that is what every young artist needs to be thinking about. Yeah. When you think back on, on your career, were there teachers or composers that inspired you, that sort of pushed you in, in the direction you went? Oh, that's interesting. I I didn't, I can't think of any teachers one-on-one um, I certainly had a mentor, a composer named Malcolm Dalglish, who um, was who wrote a masterpiece choral piece called Hymnody of Earth. Uh, he's a hammer dulcimer player. Also had, um, I remember some of my colleagues at IU were just very downputting. Um, or there was this one conversation where, where somebody who was very Yale educated and was like, oh, yes, Malcolm and his pretty little... Uh, Americana pieces and I was like oh man please my dear Um, because I just felt like there is this sense of it there has been a sense of somewhat looking down upon that has happened in classical music um, when it deals with folk music even though it has borrowed successfully borrowed folk material for for eons um but one of my mentors was was somebody who, again, I, I mentioned that story because he perhaps didn't quite fit in with either the folk world or the or the classical world as they def- as they were trying to define themselves, you know, in yeah. that moment. And so I think he's an influence. Um, and then another person who nobody knows, uh, especially in the classical music world, but she uh, recorded for ECM Records. Her name was Lena Villemark, and she's a fiddler and a singer in Sweden. And she's known more in jazz circles now, but her way of performing was very um, freeing for me because, again, she did not care. Um, she just let the music push through her. Um, and that's what you received when you when you heard and saw her. That's awesome. Samora, what do you do when you want to unwind? When mm. you want to sort of step back from everything, what what sort of hobbies or interests do you have? Great question. I um we I we bought a Christmas tree for the first time um for me for the first time because I lived in LA for years and years. I I now live in in Vermont, 
these days. Um, I came back to be closer to my mom. And um, so I love to hear I'm just embracing winter things like skiing. (laughs) And I love to dance. And I love poetry um, and writing letters to people. Um, Doing kind of mischievous things like, I don't know, like super... um, innocent little things like making dreaming up um gift giving schemes or scavenger hunts or something like that I, it gives me great pleasure not that i get to do it all the time but just sort of uh <laughs> just being a little mischief elf i like doing as well that's great that's <laughs> great all right we're gonna take a quick little break uh, and when we come back we will listen to some of Morris compositions Welcome back. I'm joined today by Maura Smiley. So we're going to start today with I Have a Voice, written for SSSAAA Chorus uh, and Body Percussion, commissioned by ACDA. This piece approaches themes of empowerment, listening, and speaking up. Can you tell me more about writing this piece and specifically about these themes? Mm. So this piece went through a few uh, revisions and... This is a dance, for me as a composer, it was a dance between vulnerable, overly tender, overly personal um, explorations of of my voice, and that is my composing voice. I was on tour um, very intensely with a, a band called Tune Yards and was in comparison to the experience of her and and backing her every night, um, Meryl Garbus, the head of Tune Yards, I felt like milk toast. <laughs> and so I was trying to find my voice in amongst being a performer in this very exciting arena. Um, and, and I got the commission whilst I was on the road. And so I came to... LA and stayed in a friend's house and tried to wrestle with this. Um, what am I going to write um, that means anything when it seems like my friend here has a way more exciting way to present ideas? And this is the the piece that came out of that. And it was sort of thinking about um, young women at the, at the beginning. I mean, I, this was for many choirs, but I was thinking about women um, also, I guess we were coming into the Me Too movement time, women reevaluating where they were and and trying to take stock of of um, of the power structures that they find themselves in and how much voice do they feel like they have or that they want. Um, and so that definitely was in the periphery around my own personal story of finding a voice when I was around somebody with a stronger one. Um, so that's a that's a lot of what it's about. That is that is amazing. So would you say that the that the underlying theme is, is what is it a personal journey for the singer, um, or is it is it a collective eye where mm. I have a voice is sort of talking about uh, the group in general, you know, yeah. sort of going into the Me Too movement. Were you were you hoping it would give women a voice? I mean, it ended up that way, right? And I guess yeah. that's when we're doing our jobs sort of well, is that what was a very personal thing, uncomfortable personal um, predicament, was ended up being attached to something that was, you know, collective. And I'd say that once I was doing the final revision of this, I was definitely thinking about, voice as a collective thing voice as women uh voice as the as the underprivileged voices uh, in voting all of these things sort of kept bubbling forward as um a big part of this and of course we were just starting in 2018 when i did the final revision um you know donald trump was in office and it felt like there was more and more and more shouting um and 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 uh, what do you call that um when you're sort of not posing, um, pr- oh, I, la- I lost the word, but um, when you're, 
oh goodness, it's such a good word. You're sort of putting yourself forward and and not listening. You're you're declaring, I'm right. Um, there was this culture, and it and it still continues today in 2020. Of, I don't care what you say. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm right, and nobody can right. tell me. And I felt very nervous about that that atmosphere. And I so the listening part really seemed important. Um, yeah, that that we are collective. We are not. I mean, we're individuals, but we are not operating um, as islands. We affect one another intensely. So. All right. Well, speaking of listening, let's listen to part of "I Have a Voice." This is performed by the Missouri State Women's Chorus. We'll turn next to Time in Our Voices for eight-part choir and cell phones with electronic sound design. You know, normally we think of cell phones as disruptors of our musical performances, but here you interweave their usage into the music itself. Yes. What themes or ideas were you approaching in this piece? Well, it was exactly that. I was approaching that taboo. Um, when I first was asked to write this piece, I'd just written another piece for Ellie Master Corral, and... We were, Grant and I were talking about a piece that could be sung also by the high school chorus festival that they do every year. And so I was really thinking about, um, about teenagers and what is a central part of their life, you know, obviously family, um, obviously their, their sense of themselves as it is starting to separate from their family um, 
and the stories that they're telling on their devices, you know, with these various apps. So I felt like the cell phone needed to be in there. I, I felt from the beginning in some way that it, that we would involve cell phones. What ended up happening is that I wrote a, a very long piece, Five Movements, and we didn't end up doing it with the high school chorus in that festival. But what we did do is we pulled in, we asked um, via all the choir directors in these schools, which was about a thousand kids, um, for them to record their families talking about time. Uh, because this was also relating to Morton Lordson's Lux Eterna. And so we were um, thinking about the themes relating to that time, eternity, light. Um, and so I asked these students to record their families, interview them with some specific questions about the passage of time and about their own voice um, as they as they go through time. Um, and so I got, I got interviews, I, I think from about 250 kids, um, of, of their kid siblings or friends, their parents, um, their teenage friends and their elders. And what ended up coming through was this really powerful testament or testimony about, um, the human experience being being one with a beginning and an end you know just that this and and that the voices that were recorded even on these little devices changed radically you had the really bright little voices of the kids and then the teenagers are more like this and then the adults are speaking more like this and then and then when 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 the elders were speaking often they were sort of more tired or very low so it was also this exploration of how the human voice changes across a lifetime so is that was playing on the cell phones yes during the the piece okay so it's been done in two ways um like the the when paul hillier conducted it in denmark they held up the interviews on their cell phones so they had the files of those various interviews that i had put into a basically a file that they could play from their cell phones, which was very cool. And I thought it was really effective. Another chorus did it where they had speakers. They also controlled those files with their cell phones while they were singing, which is a feat and had little Bluetooth speakers. And then I've, and then LA Master Crowd, because it's such a big hall, we actually just created a sound design that they played over the, the sound system of the hall. Okay. Um, and so it's been done in various ways. All right. Well, let's listen to a performance of Time in Our Voices. This is Ars Nova Copenhagen under the direction of Paul Hillier.
Next, a piece that has been written during our lockdown and isolation due to the worldwide pandemic, Why Are You Here?, written for and premiered by Notice, uh, performed virtually, I should say. This piece deals with ideas of isolation and technology. Since it was premiered on YouTube in August, I assume you began writing near the beginning of the shutdown? Yeah, so I wrote it... Um... It it was written before the shutdown, so it okay. was, um, and and we were going to perform it in early April, um, together. So it seems and, very prescient then. Yes, sort of looking forward. Yeah, it was. It felt very. I mean, it's again that same dialogue, and I'm I'm having it over and over in my own head about, you know, how does the artist, the singer, the professional singer listener that that we are. Um, singer listeners that we are um how do we relate to this technology you know in our hands these little computers that we carry around um and so when the pandemic happened and i thought and dominic and i dominic diorio and i were talking about how to do this piece we realized um you know that these young people had a different perspective even than than i did about what a isolation means and what connection means when you are relying upon your devices, um, which then became hugely appropriate for the pandemic as we all locked down. So it was, yeah, I think it's a conversation that was already started, but the p- pandemic was putting um, a much bigger amplifier on on those questions. Do you feel like you sort of found any answers to those questions as you were working on this project? Mm, I think I the answer that I found while working with Notice is, again, we recorded all the voices um, of, of the singers. And that's a very um, intimate, it feels like such an honor to receive these kinds of spoken musings because it's it's a very intimate act to speak into your phone um and about your feelings um especially of of loneliness and isolation um and so i felt that there is a power there is an unexpected power in communicating through these devices we have to both be critical of the technology and the things that we lose in not connecting in these other ways, but we also have to acknowledge the specific uh, grace that that technology brings. And, and in that case, it's this very intimate quality of speaking to one another. The other thing, you know, for example, on Zoom is that in a Zoom, you can chat, you can use the chat function. And so it kind of takes away some of the hierarchy of the louder kids, the more extroverted kids dominating a, a room and and allows maybe quieter kids to also get their thoughts heard. Mm-hmm. So there's these interesting things that are happening as we as we acquire these technologies. That's great. Well, let's listen to a moment of why are you here? I have to say, I have to keep reminding myself how to say that. Yeah. It's not, why are you here, but why are Well, and I, I should say, and I, I talk too much, but <laughs> it is definitely a play on that. Why are you here? And you're here, the idea is you're here to express something, but also to connect to your fellow beings. And um, why are you here is definitely, uh, you know, a thought about how we're doing that today. All right. Well, let's listen to Notice's performance of Why Are You Here? You know, now our only choice is to make music and to see one another and communicate with one another through our devices. Don't touch each other like we touch each other with our hands. When I was on campus, that would have felt like, yes, I was fully productive. And the rest of my five hours could have been on my phone. But if I'm at home and I spend time is one hour, I just feel trapped in my head. It feels like I'm wasting wasting my own time. Why does it feel like that? Why is me touching myself a break? I'm not on my screen. 
I just want everything to go back to normal. I'm terrified about the future, but I don't have the words to speak about it. Will make me feel closer to you. I'm terrified about the future, but I don't have the words to speak about it. I'm terrified about the future, but I don't have the words to speak about it. I'm terrified to make music and to see one another and communicate with one another through our devices. isolation. That's the worst part. Don't know what to do while I'm waiting. I don't feel angry or hurt or sad about anything. Just feels very... I don't feel angry or hurt or sad about anything. It's just the isolation. That's the worst part. I'm just numb. Endless. And lastly, I want to talk today about Bello. So let's actually listen to a bit of this one before we talk about it. Unzip the horizon with our voices. Unzip the horizon with our voices. Unzip the horizon with our voices. Unzip the horizon with our 
listening to this piece, I felt the desire to bellow to the sky as well. It was so powerful. So this piece stands alone, but it's also part of a larger project, the Unzip the Horizon songbook, uh, a phrase that we actually hear in this piece, Unzip the Horizon. So can you tell us about this piece and how it fits into this project? Yeah, thank you for noticing that and, and for your for your reaction. Um, so I and I just sent you the the version from In Our Voices, which is our which is my new album, which is a version that is with four other voices. Um, the bellow is became somewhat of the linchpin or the the poster child for this this collection of songs that was actually a solo record called Unzip the Horizon, and it is a reaction to the years that I spent um, really, really without a home and because I was touring so heavily with three different groups and loving it. I absolutely adored that life, but it was quite lonely. And I was around some very powerful artists and it was me trying to find my voice again. Um, But remembering that some of the most Uh, visceral lightning bolt experiences of singing that I'd had were studying music in Ukraine. We're singing um, unison with other singers, um, you know, contrary to my love of harmony. Um, And so it's an homage to these different ways of singing, specifically this Ukrainian style of uh, folk singing that we studied uh, with Kitka in 2005, where a lot of the sound is, it's quite bright, quite, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a mask sound. Ah, it's a calling sound. And um, you sing it mostly in unison with some octaves, some fifths, but, but um, those singers said, you Americans sing too much harmony. <laughs> and they said the really the powerful way to get and to communicate in this case with these particular songs to ancestors um, is to sing in this way to sing you know with your full voice with uh, with your brethren with your sisters or your brothers and um, and bellow you know and and this woman said you know kind of indicated to this horizon in front of her that that you could that that kind of singing cuts through in a way that others kinds don't hmm. so is that where the idea of unzipping the horizon comes from yeah it's yes. awesome so Zamora, what are you working on now what's on mm. your uh, what's on the horizon for you <laughs> as i unzip the horizon um <laughs> so i'm releasing a uh 12 song album and accompanying exciting music videos with Voco. In this case, Voco is two men and three women um, from the LA area and Vancouver, Canada. And it's uh, actually some of the songs from the Unzip the Horizon songbook actually sung with multiple voices. Um, so that's happening right now. That's releasing February 19th, 2021. And I, I finished a piece for Conspirare, the Austin, Texas-based chorus. Um, that's a, a, a lament, really, a, a piece of grief, of grieving, um, called Tis a Fearful Thing to Love What Death Can Touch. And... I'm writing another small piece um, right now for a, a more spontaneous 
uh, gathering at the end of the month here um, that's supposed to be learned instantly. So that's kind of what I'm working on um, at the minute, you know, and, and I have, of course, as we all do, lots of songs in the back burner. Um, but I'm, I, and I, as I said to you in the beginning, I am having a little bit of writer's block. It just isn't um, flowing, uh, but that's, that's okay. You just have to keep, keep trudging. But um, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm trudging. well i know after listening today my listeners will want to definitely learn more about you and your music where are you located online Mm, thanks for asking so morasmiley.com and that's got that little silent i in the middle m-o-i-r-a-s-m-i-l-e-y.com fantastic are you on any social media facebook twitter all that Ah! (laughs) and it's all under my name so you can just find me on the on instagram facebook youtube um i don't know twitter i don't really do much on twitter but i i actually drive a lot of my personal stuff from instagram so that's probably where you'll actually find me (laughs) fantastic well maura smiley thank you so much for joining me today it has really been a pleasure to talk to you really a pleasure to talk to you and thank you for doing this My guest today was composer Maura Smiley. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. If you would like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by Maura Smiley, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Doe Listeners, and follow us on Instagram at Podcast. If you have a recommendation for a future guest, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.